Can we pray together? Thank you. Father God, um, you know, we do celebrate and honor uh, the past, and we celebrate and we honor your faithfulness, your goodness. Um, you know, I stand here today because you didn't let me die when I had malaria. And I stand here today because you kept me focused on you. And uh, because you brought us friends here, you, brought a, you, you have brought us a family here, that there's something very real about what's going on here and that we want to continue to do it. But we also want to keep expanding our family. We want others to know the love of Jesus. We want others to know the Spirit of God. We want others to know the presence of God. We believe that the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient that every person in Rockland County should know him. And every person should come into a relationship with God through Jesus. And so, Lord, uh, we thank you for 10. But we ask for you to come now. We ask for you to do it again. Do it more. Uh, Do it with more people. Uh, We trust you. We trust what you're up to. Uh, we cannot do this on our own. Nobody, nobody in this room has the ability to bring the kingdom except the king himself. And the spirit that comes when we really are desperate for you. So I'm desperate for you, Jesus. Desperate for your spirit. Will you lead us now as we study your word, as we go to the table of the Lord together in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a kind of a long passage. I want to conclude on chapter 11. We've been doing this study on faith, and for me it's been really, really significant how the Lord has challenged my faith. And um, I don't think anything is probably more challenging than what we're about to to look at. So uh, I'm going to get you to read out loud with me. It's kind of long, so be patient as we read together. Let's read God's Word. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded By so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I actually think when you see that, you know, that sense of it's speeding up, it's intensifying, I think we ought to clap for that one. 
Come on. I think we ought to. Now, I would say this about that. This is the recruiting poster for faith. No one would join this army. I mean, did you hear what happened to all of them? (laughs) Were you catching that as you were reading it? Some of them were sawn in two. That's really appealing. (laughs) It's an interesting thing as we get to this, we get to this passage. This is the this is kind of the end of this chapter on faith. And and one of the things that yeah, that I wanted you to see today is that in some ways you cannot fully understand chapter 11 unless you move to chapter 12. That there is, there is a, an incompleteness in this idea of faith until you move to Jesus. Everything in this writer's writing, everything that this writer to the Hebrews is writing is all speeding up until he gets to that place where he says, all of this is about Jesus. All of this is about Jesus. Now, as you look at this, this passage, there's a few like introductory things that I want to talk about. The, the first one is, if you, if you read this with me and you let the Spirit of God sort of give you the emotion of this passage, what you'll see is that, that he's actually, he's trying to draw it to this chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and he's trying to lead into, he's, he's almost anxious about getting to the place where he's talking about Jesus. Everything here is to bring us to this place where you begin to understand that the focal point of all of life, I mean, for many of us, we have so many different focuses. But in the Bible, especially in the, when the writer of the book of Hebrews, when he writes this, he says, look, everything in your life, everything that's going on in your life, it has to come to this focal point. Is Jesus the center? Is Jesus my focus? Because if not, then everything else is out of focus. And so he's taken us to this, and it's, 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 He's bringing us to this place to understand that every one of these Old Testament heroes that he's writing about, their focus was also on Jesus. When when he starts with Abel and he, he ends with those who wandered in the desert, like John the Baptist, who had, you know, uh, crazy clothes and ate nothing but locusts and honey. You know, when, when people lived in this kind of, this very simplistic, kind of rustic type of life because they were utterly and completely devoted to God, like a person like John the Baptist, their focus, even John's focus, was not being on being a prophet. His focus was on Jesus, and having been focused on Jesus, he lived out his life as a prophet. You see, everything that they're talking about here, every single person, Enoch, who was alone in a generation of those who didn't believe that God existed, but Enoch did, and he walked as a single-minded man of God in a generation that didn't believe in God. He did that not because uh, of some wonderful spirituality about Enoch, but he did that because he saw Jesus. Now, Enoch and Abel, Moses and Abraham, all of these great men of faith, they saw him by faith. And they saw him not in the way that you and I get to see him, but they saw him according to the promise of God. What what the writer is trying to drive the point home is, that everyone who has ever done great exploits for God, everyone who has lived heroically for God, everyone who's ever lived triumphantly for God did so believing in the promise of Jesus. See, every one of these people who, who experience persecution, oppression, who experience death, imprisonment, chains, all of these things that the writer wrote about 
they had firmly fixed in their mind that God has promised Jesus, God will not fail to give us Jesus, and so we will live for Jesus even though we haven't seen Jesus. That's the point of this whole passage. He tells about the nature of faith, and he describes how faith impacts a person's life. He describes what faith looks like in a person's life. But the primary thing that this writer is trying to drive across to you and to me and to those that he initially wrote to is he's saying that those who went before you have had trials as bad as you or worse than you. Those who went before you have had disappointments, discouragements, have had things not go the way they thought they should go. As a matter of fact, the writer goes so far as to say, these were ones of whom the world was not worthy. That the world did not appreciate what they had. That the world could not see the value in these men and in these women. You know, what does that say? It says if, if you and I live for the approval of the world, if we live according to what the world values, we will not be living according to what God values. You and I may, we may, we may in all of our you know, wisdom figure out how to take roads of least resistance. We may figure out how to, let me, let me figure out how to be independent, how to, how to have my own wealth, how to have my own power, how to have, have my own way and my own will. And many of us in this room, we're actually very good at getting our own way. But in doing so, in, in, in living in such a way that our focus is on getting our way, we will do what the world values. Can I, I want to illustrate this for you. Growing up as I did in a, a very dysfunctional home in a very abusive situation, from an early age, my intuition was very highly developed because you always had to know how angry my father was. I mean, I always had to, coming into the house, you're like, what is his mood today? Or him coming into the house, what is his mood today? And so I have a highly developed intuition. I can walk into a room and put my antenna up and I can figure out who likes me and who doesn't like me. And I can figure out what people want from me. I can figure out what they want me to be, what they want me to say. And so for years of my life, everything was geared towards how do I get my way by giving people what they want? How do I become indispensable so that, you can, so, that, so that people will need me. And it's such, a, it's such a trap to live for the approval of people because have you ever noticed that what people delight in today, they hate tomorrow? That what, you know, you, you, you come and you say, oh, I, 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 I want to do this for this person. They go, oh, that was wonderful. Oh, thank you for doing that. Now tomorrow they expect it. Now it's not so wonderful, it's demanded. I mean, have you, uh, am I making sense to you in this? So if all of your life, see, and this is about focus. So what my focus was, was really me. But my focus was on how could I get what I wanted, what I needed from others. And one of the ways that I like to describe this is I became the broker of my own needs. So by becoming the broker of my own needs, I had to be in touch with what, every, what was going on with everybody else. And it's, it's an interesting thing because what happens a lot of times, and I see this with people all the time, is people are totally in touch with everybody else and not really honest about self. And what happens is when you start being the broker of your own needs, you're basically just using everybody. I mean, you might say, I love you, but really what you're saying is, I want you to love me. And uh, you don't really care if you love them or not. You just want to know, do they delight in you? Do they love you? Are they safe to you? And what happens then, if someone rejects you or disapproves of you, it's devastating. Even if you don't like them. Because suddenly someone doesn't like you. Someone doesn't 
respect you. Someone doesn't approve of you. And the next thing you know, your whole world's just shattered because of this person. When I was going to seminary, one of my professors, and he was right in saying this, he said 90% of every church you ever pastor, 90% of the people will like you and 10% will hate you. He said that was just common. It was a common. And I have seen it to be true. 10% <laughs> maybe tolerate you, but don't like you. And, uh, and it, so what happens if you're, if you're tuned into the world and you're tuned into approval, the 90% don't matter. The only people that matter are the 10%. Guess what? The 10% never changes. No matter what you do for them, no matter what you give to them, no matter how you change. And suddenly, even if they do, are, are you tracking a little bit with me on this? Even if they do decide they accept you, they accept a version of you. They're not accepting the real you. They're accepting a version of you. So you're, whether you're consciously or subconsciously, you're recognizing they don't really love me. They love what I can do for them. You see, why am I saying this psychological kind of stuff to you? Is because if you don't understand the world system, you are trapped by it. The world system is that you have to figure out how to get the maximum number of people to approve of you. And in order to do that, you have to buy the right shampoo. You have to wear the right clothes. You have to focus on what car you have, what house you live in. You have to focus on all kinds of things that will distract you from the true focus of your life. Anybody say amen? Amen. And then what happens is you get scattered all over the place. You're trying to make this happen and that happen. Some of you, you need to step back and even look and see, even with my children or my grandchildren, have I given in to the world? Because if you're teaching them how to get the world's approval, then you are teaching them to reject the values of God. You have to understand that the greatest, the greatest heroes of faith were not recognized by the world. And the world, the Bible says, was not worthy of them. It's important that we get this point in here, that faith, and this is not easy for me to say, but it is a truth that faith will separate you. Your faith will separate you. You will at times feel alone, You will at times feel misunderstood. You will at times wonder if anything's ever going to go your way. It is the way that has always been. The whole of the Old Testament, which is this incredible revelation of God and of the people who received Him and His approval. And the Bible is full of, of the stories of what it cost them. Now, again, I say to you, this isn't a great recruiting poster. I mean, the easier recruiting poster would say, it's all going to, you know, let go and let God, and it's all going to be good. But it isn't going to be in the way that we often define good. But here's this, I mean, again, I may be a strange bird. Amen, some of you said. There's the 10%. (laughs) but there's something about when i read those those great men and women of faith there's something about their story that my heart starts to beat a little faster and my spirit begins to rise up and i begin to say to him lord i i want to be worthy of that I don't want to take the path of least resistance. I don't want to live trying to get the world's approval. I don't want to be scattered all over the place, chasing every dream and catching none. I want to focus. And what I began to realize is that all of this training that pain had given me in my 
childhood and my early adult life, all of that pain that trained me actually dug some pretty deep wells in my soul where I could feel things pretty deeply. But what I had to do is I had to stop defending myself. I had to stop protecting myself. Because if I use powers of intuition or I use powers of discernment or I use spiritual things in order to do it for self, it gets twisted. It gets turned. I I begin to see rejection where there is no rejection. I begin to fear what's not even real. I begin to be anxious about what's not even happened yet. Because I... I'm defending a fool with a fool. And when I finally laid that down and said, Lord, my antenna is not to defend me. My intuition or my inner thoughts or my inner life is not for me to defend me. I have a defender. His name is Jesus. And he can do a good job of that. And I am willing that my body would be sacrificed. I am willing that I would be you know, spent for Jesus. And I'm willing even that, to experience these betrayals. I'm willing to experience even these persecutions. I'm willing to experience these things so long as I can know Jesus. And one of the things that transformed and, and changed my life in, in my 30s is that I began to realize the important thing was not how much people loved me, but how much I loved people. And the one thing that, I, I, that got so clear to me, and any of you that are thinking about ministry, this is probably one of the most important things, is that the only person you have any right to control or ability to control is yourself. How other people respond to you, you, you have some ability to love them, to speak truth to them, to, to encourage, to stimulate good things in their lives, all of that kind of stuff. But you cannot and never will be able to control their responses. And so I began to realize the most important focus was for me to focus on the love of Jesus for me and then to focus on the love of Jesus for others. And I made this commitment, which the Lord has, has been gracious and and, and showing me how to do it. And I said, I will love. I will love the people of God. I will love the community. I will love those who don't love me. I will love those who do love me. And what I found is, if my goal is to love, nobody can block that. Some of you are harder than others. But no one can keep you from loving someone else. They may not respond in love to you. But they cannot keep you from loving them. And as a matter of fact, it's probably the most irritating thing to people who hate you is when you love them and you never stop loving them. You cannot do that. You cannot do that with the approval of the world. And you cannot do that out of the affection of your own heart. You have to do it out of the love that God has for people. But when you begin to walk by faith and you begin to realize, I want to be one of those people that's on the list of these great men and women of faith, then it has to be that you have to know what the cost is, and the cost is high. Because love is not cheap. Love is never cheap. Affection is cheap. You know, you can feel these great feelings, warm feelings, and they can go away quickly. Infatuation is cheap, because infatuation is always based on deception. It's always based on illusion. I think you're this, so I feel this for you. Love is always based on knowledge. Real love always costs because when you love someone, you know what it's going to cost you. And when you love God, especially when you decide, I'm going to love God with all my heart, you begin to realize this is going to cost me everything. This is going to cost me everything. It's going to separate me from the world. It's going to take me to places I myself would not go on my own. So, and on, this is making sense to you this morning. I, f- I feel a tenderness of the Lord in the room for us. And so, if you notice that these last verses that we read, he covers the entire Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years of history in just a few verses. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to get to Jesus. 
I mean, he says, this is great. Let me tell you about Abel. Let me tell you about Enoch. Let me tell you about Noah. Let me tell you about Abraham. Let me tell you about Moses. And he starts going, and let me tell you about these other, you know, he starts to really rapidly go through these others. Why? Because he wants to get to Jesus. See, because there are certain things that are now true for you and me that were not true for that great portrait gallery of heroes. There's a, a, a show that I like. I used to watch it with Anna. I, like, I, I, I know this is another weird thing, but I like chick flicks. And uh, Anna and I used to watch uh, Pride and Prejudice together. There's a version that came out in the 90s. And my daughter and I would sit and watch it together and cry a little bit, you know. And, uh, <laughs> but there's this one scene in there. It's, it, it, it's a fascinating scene where, where the, the heroine who's been resistant to the hero the heroine ends up at the house of the hero, and it's this amazing, beautiful family home, and the housekeeper takes her through the series of portrait of all the family, and she's walking her through, but then suddenly the housekeeper gets to her master, she calls him, Mr. Darcy, those of you that know Jane Austen in this. And she just starts waxing eloquent about what a wonderful young man he is, what an awesome, wonderful person, and has no idea that the heroine has already rejected a marriage offer from him. And you see on the face of the heroine that she's starting to look at that picture a little differently. Of course, the big house didn't hurt. (laughs) All the money didn't hurt. But she starts to change when she sees his, his surroundings to see him as he really is. And I, I've always thought about that and said, there's something in this that's just this picture of the way it is with Jesus. You know, there are many of us who go, oh, I don't need God, or I don't want God, or I keep God at arm's length. Let me have a religion between me and God. Then you get to see who he really is. You see, ever since you were born, he's made you a marriage offer. Ever since you came on the scene, there's been an offer of marriage. He's been wanting to unite with you. He's been wanting his life to be entangled with your life. But it's not until you see him as he really is. It's not to you... You see him for all that he is, and you see all the riches that he has, and you see all the goodness that he has, and all the beauty that he has, and then suddenly you're like, well, maybe I would lay my life down for this guy. And the writer of the Hebrews says that everything else that he's talked about, he said everything else is all leading to this point where you begin to see Jesus as he really is. And in some ways, you, gotta, you find that if you're going to get focused, you have to go back to these basics. And there, there's four things that he says in this, in this passage. When you begin to enter into union with Christ and your faith unites with Christ. And the first, the first one is in the, in the end of chapter, um, chapter 11 there where he says basically realize that you now live in a privileged position recognize, uh, focusing your eyes upon Jesus because all those that went before you, all of those did not have what you have. They were looking to Jesus. We look back to the reality of Jesus. They were looking for Jesus. We see him as he really is. God has given us something so much better. As a matter of fact, what what he's really pushing us, he's saying, You know, by God's grace, every obstacle in your life can be overcome by faith. But the key, the key thing, and this this is the issue that so many of us have, is because one, we're we're so entangled with the world's favor, and two, we're so entangled with our own sense of I need this, I want this, I have to have this, I can't live without this kind of thing, that all we often focus on are outcomes and results. You see, you are not afraid and you do not experience anxiety over something that doesn't matter to you. You only experience anger, anxiety, depression, or fear. You only experience those things when it really, really does matter to you. 
when there's something that you care about, when you're the something you care about, but then you recognize this is just out of my control. I don't have the ability to control this. I don't have the right to control this. I mean, many times you are faced with situations where somebody else controls your job. There are times in your life where things that you long for depend on someone else. You know, my life is so united to my wife's life, to what she wants and what she desires and and what she thinks. And so there's a lot that goes on because she is a fairly uncontrollable woman. (laughs) And one of the most interesting things is I, I think that One of the things I'm naturally good at is persuasion, okay? It absolutely works zero on Lisa. And the more persuasive I try to be, the more resistant she becomes. So then, you know, it only took me 20 years to figure this out. But, uh, you know, I would get louder. I would get more, you know, forceful. And she would shut down more. And it's always been so interesting to me that God gave me a woman who is utterly resistant to all my charms. (laughs) All those things I worked on for so many years, she's utterly oblivious to and actually resistant to. And it's been so fascinating to me because sometimes I'm like, you know, Lord, what did you do to me? Because some of the biggest things in my life, I always want her approval. I always want her to say, yes, I guess you never quit being a little boy in some ways. You know, there are things, and she's sitting there going, mm-mm, this is a bad idea. It's not a good idea. Why? Why? It's just not a good idea. She won't even give me reasons. I give her 10 reasons why it's a good idea with illustrations and, and an altar call at the end. You know, if you could focus on this with me, what usually trips you up is what you want. What usually trips you up is what you think or feel like you need, and you begin to even sort of project in the future, I would be happy if, I would be satisfied if this happens. And what happens then is your focus goes off of Jesus, in whom is all satisfaction, and all happiness, and your focus goes on the result, the outcome. What I've seen over the years is even good people have prayed themselves into unbelief because they start telling God how things have to happen. Some of us, without knowing, because our inner life is not easily exposed, some of us, without knowing, have even only use God as a leverage to get what we want. So that in a sense, we say, if I pray enough, I'll get it. If I believe enough, I'll get it. Well, what of you as being a good father will give a snake to your child, a poisonous snake to your child if they ask enough? Dad, please, I want this poisonous snake. No father would do that except for a mean and cruel father. He says, well, let's let him see what happens when he has a poisonous snake. A good father, no matter how many times a son asks, is not going to give him a scorpion. You know what scorpions do? They're not not cuddly. And, And many of us, what we don't know is the result we think we need is no better than a scorpion. It's no better than a poisonous snake. But to us, it looks beautiful. To us, it looks like that's my happiness. And then when God says, no, no, not now, not, ne- not, not right now, or he even takes something that's good, something you long for that is good for you to have, but he says, not now. Why would he do that? Is it because he's cruel? No, because your inner life is not easily exposed. And it is not till it is exposed that you can be healed. I mean, I don't, this is making some sense to you. See, one of the things that is so fascinating to me, because I have now counseled with and talked with thousands of people <laughs> all over the world. We're not that much different under the, in the internal life. But you will not believe how many people are angry and don't know it. 
How many people are anxious and it's so normal for them they don't even think of it as anxiety anymore? How many people are fearful and do everything out of fear and they never ever realize how fearful they are? I've even met people who, if you say, how are things going, it's fine, but they're utterly and completely depressed and all the symptoms are there, but they deny it. Well, if as a loving father, he decides to push you or he decides to squeeze you, he's not doing it because he's cruel. He's doing it because you're that stubborn and you're that resistant and you would go, you know, you would be one of those who would walk in front of a uh, moving vehicle just to prove that you can. I mean, there are, some, there are some things that you begin to realize that if my focus is on the results, if my focus is on the outcome and stuff, then I don't have a real relationship with God as Father. I have a relationship with God as, as just the one who's supposed to do everything I want Him to do. And I, if you've gotten to the place where many of us got to the place where we don't want to hear no from anybody, God never has trouble saying no because he knows what he's doing. He knows what will be produced. He's not afraid of your anger. He's not afraid of your anxiety. But you and I have to begin to realize that you have it in a way better than anyone's ever had it before. And we are so quick to say, oh, woe is me. I wish I lived in the 50s. Or I wish I lived in another day or another time. One, one day or age I've never wanted to live in is anywhere there were not indoor plumbing. <laughs> and there's no nostalgia about that for me. And in Mississippi, that was 1970. So, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Only in parts of Mississippi. So here, here's what Jesus has to say. He called John the Baptist and said, he's the greatest Old Testament prophet who has ever lived. But Jesus said this, the very least, which we could be the least in his kingdom because we're in the kingdom of Jesus. He said, the very least in my kingdom is greater than even John the Baptist or any of the others. You know what? If you and I could realize this, and I, I know some of you are going to leave here and you're not going to realize this. Because you just come, you punch your time, you say, I, I did a nice spiritual thing. But I'm telling you, as simple as this message is today, if you could get this one, one truth, there's nothing holding you back but you. You could be the greatest spiritual person that's ever lived in our generation, but you, you choose not to be. Because you choose to focus on everything else. You choose to believe the world. You choose, you choose to think that those needs that are so needy, those wants that are so wanty in your life, all of that, that that's what's going to make you happy. And I'll tell you what, up to this point, it has not done so. Why do you think it will change tomorrow? The only thing that will truly satisfy you. And I know some of you, I look around, some of you have some things that are good things that you want, and they will happen in God's time. But the reason he's delaying is to get the junk up so that you can become that man of faith, that woman of faith. And it doesn't matter if you're, I mean, I look around, we got some young people in the room. I look around, we have some old young people in the room. And, uh, you know, we have all of us in this room. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. This is your time to be transformed. But you got to recognize all the resources that you have because what does the enemy want you to look at? He wants you to look at what you don't have. And so that you're, you're complaining and you're griping. Do you know what complaining is praying? It's just negative praying. Everything you ever complain about, more of it comes your way. It's, it's sort of like the way the world works. The more you gripe, the more you get what you gripe about. The more you complain, the more you get what you complain about. But what does the, what does the writer say? Recognize that no one's been in, ever been in a better position than you. And if, you, if, if, if it comes up like this, this is the way it used to come up with me. I was like, I, I see this scripture, I see this truth, Lord, but I don't feel this way. I feel like I'm in the worst position ever. I feel like nothing ever goes my way. I feel like nothing ever happens. You know what that tells me? It tells me that you've dug a pit for yourself. 
And so more you need Jesus because he's the only one who can rescue you from the pit. The psalmist said it this way. He said, I waited upon the Lord and the Lord redeemed my life from the pit. I mean, when I feel, and those feelings are real, I'm not saying they're not real, and I feel like I'm in a pit, and I feel like everything I do is cursed, and everything I do, I take two steps forward to take five steps backwards, and every time I go forward and start running, I hit a wall. If that happens, it is not because it's not real. It's because the spiritual attack on you, it's because of the spiritual bondage, and because of the spiritual, just the, the spiritual atmosphere in your life is like a pit. And the only one who can drag you out of that pit is Jesus. So no matter whether you're in the pit or you're on the mountaintop, the same focus is what you need. And part of it is you have to recognize you're invited. You have a special invitation to recognize I'm in the greatest age of Jesus ever. I'm not, I'm not going to ignore that the world is a tough place. I'm not ignoring that. But I'm, I'm saying what the Bible says to me is that as good as John the Baptist was, the least in the kingdom is even better because we have the Holy Spirit in a way that they didn't have. Does this make sense? I am get exercised about this. So if I'm going to do this then, if I'm going to be believing that I'm in this great place, then what does it say? He says, then get rid of every obstacle to my spiritual fruitfulness. He says, you know, get everything that has weighed you down, everything that is, has clung to you that would keep you from being fruitful, you got to get rid of it. And this is, I really believe that most of the trials in our life is for us to open our eyes and say, Jesus, I need you and I need to get rid of this. And some of us, we can't do it quickly. Some of us, we have to do it really seeing it really clearly before we can get rid of it. Well, the writer says it this way. He says, since we're in a race, let's make sure we remove everything in the race that will impede our progress. I I don't know how many athletes there are in a room, but, uh, you know, there are different areas of of physical endurance that you've been a part of. And and to think that, you know, you're going to go run a race, but you're going (laughs) to... You're going to run it in a suit of medieval armor. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to go to the Olympics in armor. That's the idea that the writer has here is that, you know, when you're running a race, you lighten the load. You don't, you don't make it heavier. You don't entangle yourself. You, you get it to where you begin to say, this thing is a race. And in some ways, I'm not, I'm not apologetic about sharing this even with new believers, Because from the minute you come to Christ, the race starts. And when you start running a race, you you, you know, you get rid of everything that's going to weigh you down, everything that's going to slow you down. And so this is why any incidental things in your life that are just keeping you from that very focused running of the race, they're not good for you. It's not because God is cruel and says, I want to take away everything you enjoy. It's because God is good and he says, I want to take everything that would keep you from being fruitful. That's why, I don't know, you know, we don't have all the time in the world to talk about this, but when people come and they start sticking more and more rules on you and they start saying it has to look like this and it has to be like this and it has to be like that, they're not helping you run the race. They're keeping you from running the race. You know, how, many things about how you dress, things about how you spend your money, things about, you know, what you enjoy, the pleasures that you enjoy. These are, not, these are not necessarily the things that keep you from running the race. Primarily, it's not the external things, it's the internal things. You know what keeps you from running a race? Fear. You know what keeps you from running a race and focusing? Anger. You know what keeps you from running a race? Love, being unloving, unforgiving, being bitter. Those are the kind of things that entangle you. So there are people that they keep all of the rules, but they're still not running the race. The race has to be focused on Jesus. And some of the times what happens is there are things that we love doing or there are things that we love, and those things actually get in the way of the Lord. Good things, not just bad things. I mean, some of us, our relationships with our children, our relationship with our husbands, our wives, these things can get in the way because we don't know how to focus on the Lord and be married. 
or focus on the Lord and be parents. Focus on the Lord and be people who are good at our jobs. I really believe that if you're focused on the Lord, you're going to be the best employee in your whole company. If you're focused on the Lord, you'll be the best husband your wife has ever had. Matter of fact, you'll be so good, she might want to kick you out because she doesn't know who you are. (laughs) Well, I want to kind of move on to the next one. So what does he say? Uh, He says, you know, he says, not only do you rid yourself, but you have to be willing to run the race with endurance. He says, you know, I like the idea here of stickability, that, they call, that we call it, you stick to it. That you don't just, you don't just, yeah, stick to itiveness. You don't just stop because you feel a little uh, winded or you feel a little bit pain or whatever it is. You realize, I'm going to run this race all the way through. It's interesting because in some ways it's essential how you feel, but in other ways it's important to recognize that your feelings should not keep you from your goal. Anybody that ever does any athletics will not feel like doing the things that will make you a great athlete. You know, if you suddenly said, I don't think I'm going to run anymore because I don't feel like it, you're never going to be a great athlete. I remember as a kid when they first, I played football in um, middle school and then at August, we were, August in Mississippi, it was 100 and something degrees. And in those days, they didn't give you water. They gave you salt pills or something. It was stuff that was terrible for you. And then they'd make you run 10 100-yard wind sprints. And I remember the first time I ever did it, I just passed out. I blacked out, went out. I, I had never felt anything like that in my life before. And I, I was thinking, I'm really not really cut out for football, you know. This is really too hard. This is too difficult. And then, and then little by little, staying with it, never, never liking wind sprints, but staying with it, I began to beat the other guys and began to run faster than the other guys and began to run all 10 of them, you know. And, and you begin to, to realize you do not get anywhere unless sometimes you pass out, break down, you know. You push yourself beyond your limits. Now, I know that in some ways that this has to be balanced, but I, I really do believe that there are, there are ways to get through the walls. And when you get to the other side, you find out, I was made for this. The greatest things, the most satisfying things, usually there are obstacles between you and that thing. And there has to be a willingness to say, I'm going to stick with it. So, so the writer to the Hebrews said, I'm going to run this race. Um, one of the ways that I've found over the years, one of the ways that I've found is that in many ways, the battle begins in your mind, not your emotions. If, if you can recognize that your mo- emotions are more of a diagnosis of what you are thinking or believing instead of they are reality. Your emotions are more a, 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 a kind of a diagnostic tool or a- analysis of what am, I, what am I struggling to believe. When, when you begin to say, I'm in this race, I'm going to run it with endurance. Your mind begins to lock down on that and say, this is what I believe. This is what I commit to. Your will follows. But if you never make those mental, intellectual, cognitive decisions, then you will be tossed and turned by how does this feel instead of what have I committed to? You see, when you begin, you will have feelings against what you've committed to. Because pain is is not pleasant. But as you say, but I've made this committed commitment, and I'm going to stick to it. Then what happens is you begin to see the victories come. Your will follows. The last one that I wanted to run over with you, there's a lot here, and I'm just going to go over some of it. He says, Therefore, which is a connecting word, he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, and he talks about running the race with endurance, throwing off the things that encumber us, getting rid of the sin that clings to us. But then he says, fixing our eyes on, on Jesus. And then he says, the author and the finisher of our faith. And there's, a, there's this really powerful Greek word there. It's the word archegos that they translate founder, but I think it's the word champion. And I think that the way that this word is usually used is, in, is, is a gladiator. It's the word, it's, it's the word that's used for the, the champion of the ring. 
of the one who's in the arena has defeated all other comers. And so he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author or the champion, the gladiator of your faith and the completer of your faith. And, and so think about this with me. I want to go through it quickly, but it's very powerful. What the writer is saying is that our team, and you're part of our team, you're Jesus' team, our team is always playing away games. Come on, that's a pretty good insight when you think about it. We are always playing away games. It's as if the Yankees never got to play at Yankee Stadium. And it doesn't matter where the Mets play. But uh, <laughs> just seeing if you're awake. Uh, but it's as, if, it's as if a team that has an amazing home field advantage suddenly gets that taken away from them. And they have to play on the road. The writer says that you and I will spend our entire life on the road. So he says, how do you, how do you overcome that? Uh, can, you, can you feel that with me? I mean, does it seem like that? Those of you, you get that idea. You're playing the sport of your life, but you're on the road all the time. Well, what's the great advantage of being at home? It's usually the, it's the fans. It's the stands. It's the encouragement. It's, you know, it's the profanity in Yankee Stadium. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's whatever's going on that, that, that makes you go, these are our people. We're at home. So the writer says this. He says, you play every game on the road, but the stands are already filled with those who are for you. I mean, if you could get this picture, whatever stadium you love, and you think about it, I'm, it's not my home stadium, but I'm playing on a, on a foreign field. I'm playing on a field that's not my home, but up in the stands are all my fans. And there's not a single enemy fan up there. There's not a, uh, there's not a fan of the opposition up there. In those stands are Abraham. In those stands are Noah. In those stands are Moses. In those stands are Enoch and Abel and Elijah and Elisha. And every time you hit an obstacle, they're saying, you can do it. And not only those great ones, but those are your parents that went before, your grandparents who went before. Those are your ancestors who, who look down and say, she looks just like me. All the time I hear people say, oh, no, we lost our grandmother, the real intercessor of our life. Let me tell you, she just went into the stands. You think she's prayed for you well on earth? Think about what she's doing in the stands. And then in the, does this make sense to you? Because it gives me chills. Then in the arena with you, in the arena with you is the champion. See, there's this beautiful picture that the writer gives. He says, at the end of your life, the one who started and who will finish your faith is going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. But the writer's also saying, he's with you every step of the way. The champion never lets you go on the road without being with you. So I sit there and I, I go, wow, I feel alone so often. I feel like no one's with me or I feel like there's no one who understands what I'm going through. And yet what the writer is saying is up in the stands is someone who got sawn in two and he knows he knows what it is to die triumphantly. There's someone who was rejected by their family and their friends because they followed Jesus and he knows what it was to live triumphantly. And they're screaming out and they're yelling and maybe we don't hear it, but they're still doing it. And the Bible says that's what you have going on in your life. So if, if you and I could recognize, if we could just recognize that you're in a better position than you ever thought, if you'd rid yourself of the things that keep you from running. God is not evil and cruel. He's trying to, he, in his goodness, he's trying to get you to rid yourself of the sin that clings, that keeps you from running. You don't want to be one who runs in a suit of armor when you could run in some, you know, great running shorts. You don't want wind drag when you could, you could have no wind drag whatsoever. You want to be at that place where you begin to realize that as I look to Jesus, I'm not, I am on foreign turf, but I have a stand full of fans. And the champion himself is running with me. It's beautiful, isn't it? 
Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask Gabe to come up. Here's how we're going to close this out. Here's what the champion did. He said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Even though he experienced all the shame of it and all the pain of it, for the joy set before him, he did this because he knew that the hope, he knew the hope that was his in each of you. It may seem strange to you, but the Lord Jesus, when he went to the cross, could see this day. And he could see you. He had you in mind as he did this, as he went to the cross. And his decision was that nothing would keep him from running his race so that you could run your race. And so as we come to the table of the Lord today, and I... This table is open to all of you. It's it's the Lord's table. He says, come, those of you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, you know, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no place in me. But I I would like to sort of set it apart in this way. That if you're willing to run the race, if you're willing to look to Jesus, then you should come today. If you are willing to be made willing to run the race, if you're willing to say, I may not be willing to run it and to endure and to look to Jesus like Mike's talking about, but I'm willing to be made willing. I'm willing for the Lord to break down the barriers. And, and, and I'm a very, you know, you may be a very honest person. You say, I don't know if I can count that cost fully. But you're willing to say, Lord, if you will break them down, if you'll work in my heart, I'll come then I invite you to come. I I don't think this is a religious action. I don't think this is a ritual. I think something real happens. I think Jesus knew that you and I in our faith, we needed to touch something. We needed to taste something. We needed to feel something. And that by doing so, it would inspire us. It would stimulate us. it It would do something inside of us that needed to be done. And so if you're willing to be made willing, if you're willing, because... I mean, some of you are like me. I hear something like this. I say, Lord, I don't want to fail. I want it all. And then others of you are like, I'm so afraid I'm going to fail. I don't, want to, I don't want to do this and not count the cost of it. I'm saying if you'll come and say, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing, he will do it. So we're going to worship. I'm going to pray over this, and then I'm going to ask you just to come. And, and to do it yourself, to come. The, the bread is here. The cup is here. I invite you to come. It'd probably be best if we kind of came this way and exited that way. But I'd like you to come, and I'd like you just to make this table your place of saying, Lord, I want to run this race. I want to run, and I'm willing. And I'm will- And some of you might say, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. I don't know if I can do this, but I'm willing to be made willing. This is the table of the Lord. Lord, I, I set apart this bread. It's ordinary. This cup, this juice, it's ordinary. But we consecrate it for this extraordinary purpose. You said, this is my body which is broken for you. This this is what you were willing to endure for us. The brokenness of your own body, the pain of your own body. You endured so that we can endure. This is your cup. This is the cup of the new covenant, the new testament. The cup that gives us forgiveness in Jesus' name. This juice, though, ordinary in many ways by we consecrate it for this extraordinary purpose that though our sins are scarlet they shall be white as snow and we come lord having heard what the writer said that there are those who went before us who've had terrible things in their lives who've overcome incredible things many who triumphed in death and some who triumphed in life, but they did so because they looked to you and they looked to your promise. Lord, we're not looking just to the promise. You are alive. You are here. You are real. We give our lives to run the race with you, our champion. You will be there at the finish line, but you're also here right now as we run. And Lord, I I hear it today. I I don't know if anyone else does, but I hear the cheering from the stands. 
hear the cheering. I hear those who've gone before us. Some of us is our mom and our dad. Some of it's some of it's grandparents. Some of it's ancestors we never knew. But who are even now cheering us from the stands. Ones who've run the race and said, I ran this race so that you can run the race. We're not alone in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you come to the table?